Welcome to season four, Fostering Change, the number one podcast in adoption and foster care. You know, each week we speak to the most amazing good humans about topics that touch each and every one of us. If you have a guest suggestion or interest in sponsoring our podcast, please visit us at fosteringchange at comfortcases.org. Now, sit back, enjoy, learn, get motivated, and let's speak to some fascinating guests. Well, you know, it's so hard to believe that we are already halfway through March. Oh my gosh, you know, the fact is, is that when January 1 rolls around of any new year, you kind of hope that that year goes by a little slower and a little slower. And for us, at least for my family, it seems to have gone by really, really fast. And so is all the podcasts. You know, we are going to be ending our season at the end of May. And so I've been really trying to get some really inspirational people on for this season. And this is going to be a first for me. Normally when I have guests on, I just start talking, you know, I show them their book and then I invite them. But this one particular guest, I got a little, you know, you know, I don't get excited about a lot of people, but I definitely had a little bit of fan guy going on when I read his book and when I read his bio. And so I normally don't read people's bios, but I want you to hear this one because if there was anyone that as a child who's listening to this today, any young adult who has been in the system, who has experienced so many of the things that David talks about in his book. And I want you to hear what kind of man he really is. David Ambrose is a national poverty and child welfare expert and an advocate. He was recognized by President Obama as an American champion of change. He currently serves as the head of community engagement West for Amazon, Previously, he led corporate social responsibility for Walt Disney Television and served as the president of the Los Angeles City Planning Commissioner and as a California Child Welfare Council member. After growing up homeless and then in foster care, he graduated, now listen to this, he graduated from Vassar and later from UCLA School of Law. He is a foster dad and lives in Los Angeles, California. David, welcome to Fostering Change. Oh my gosh, you're going to have to do my Tinder profile. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to do I am. I, I, I will have to tell you, I definitely am that fan guy. I'm so impressed. You know, it's really hard when you know the statistics, as you know, only 50% yeah. of kids in foster care actually graduate from high school. To know that mm -hmm. you not only experience homelessness, foster care, and then to do all of these things. Thank you. I have to ask before we go through any of the questions I have about this amazing book. And by the way, guys, you want a book for your shelf. You all been to my center. Those who've come in my office, you know, I have a certain number of books that go on a certain shelf and those books earn that shelf because <clears throat> they're the ones that I pass to other people. And this book, it's going to sit on the shelf, but I'm buying this book for so many of you. But David, I have to ask, where did you get yeah. your books? First of all, thank you. You're amazing. I'm a little fanboy myself. Um, your book was mentioned to me so many times as I was going through my process. I'll answer your question, but first let me not answer it. So I constantly get asked the question of like, you know, how did you do it? How did you make it? How did you and your brother and sister make it? And I'll answer that question. But the thing I find more important is we close our eyes and imagine a system we would put our own child into if we had to put our child into foster care. 
with all of the unique needs of your child, all the love you feel for that individual, what does that system look like? Because the roadmap that I was forged in is nothing that any child should experience. They should not have to tap into the wells of resilience that they at least forced upon me to do from 12 years homelessness to delinquency and then ultimately dependency and then to homelessness again. Regardless of what I had in me, that is not a roadmap for a moral and just society. What did it? My brother, sister, and I, all three of us have advanced degrees with happy, healthy, thriving families. Almost none of us went to school for the first 12 years of our life. And how do those two things sit together? The answer to your question is my mother. You know, we treat mental health in this country like a scarlet letter. We are ashamed of them. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about our own psychotropic meds or therapy. We joke about it. And in that not funny, funny, people like my mother fall through the cracks. But my mom lit a flame in the three of us. And that is the only explanation because she's the only thing we have in common. Uh, and that flame stayed bright. My mom would say to me, even when we were homeless, you're going to be a Supreme Court justice. And I thought that was adorable. I would have loved to learn how to read. But she would say those things where she would say to my brother, you know, I give you the sun to my sister. I give you the moon. And she would say to me, I give you the stars. And so it was this flame she lit in us in the most dire of circumstances that stayed true and became my North Star out of all of the statistics that you mentioned. Wow. Wow. You know, I absolutely love that because, you know, I will have to tell you, the fact is, is that, you know, most kids, that is not what would come out of their mouth. And, you know, so many times I hear stories of how people are still blaming the system and blaming the system for the choices that they have made. And like you, I'm actually the youngest of 10 children. I'm the only one that ended up getting an education. And so, you know, seeing the statistics change where your your siblings and you, you did it, you did it, yeah. but you're the credit that you give to your mom. You know, you said something that I have to say, I have to agree 100% with you. I think we have such a shame when it comes to mental illness and of how we react to it and how we talk about it. You know, I talk very openly in my book and, and I've done many, you know, PSAs about, you know, my suffering of mental illness, because what would you not have after going through the trauma that you that you go through sure. going through the system? If you had the opportunity to look back at that young boy, you know, and for me, I call it falling into the well of darkness. And if you had an opportunity to say something to that boy who maybe was feeling that he was falling into that well of darkness, what would you say to him? I don't even have to imagine. So I, before COVID, I went to Burning Man. And I was the first time I went to Burning Man. And it's, if you're not familiar, y'all, it's an outdoor festival with 80,000 people in the desert with no digital connection, anything in the world. It's like Woodstock in the 2020s. And one of the exercises they do is you write or you display something on the temple, you nail it to the wall. And it's supposed to be some pain that you're carrying around. And then the catharsis comes at the end of the ceremony when they burn the temple and the pain. Not that it's gone, but it's, it's lesser. So I went there to consume but not exhibit. And I ended up being so moved by people's vulnerability. And this building larger than three Costco's made out of wood pallets that I decided to participate and be vulnerable. 
that I wrote a letter on some paper that happened to be nearby to Hugh, my name when I was born. And then I wrote another letter to my 12-year-old self the day that I went into foster care. And I apologized. And I told them, me, so profoundly sorry for what is about to happen to you. But you will come out the other side and you'll be better for it. And you will have an amazing life. And I wrote this letter. It was more than that, but that's the gist of it. And so I don't have to imagine what I would say to him. I, it's not that I have some sort of, you know, split personality or bipolar or, or uh, borderline personality. It's that I see different epochs of my life where different things radically change my identity from outside of my power. And so I wrote that letter to that young boy and then a slightly older boy because those were two chapters that opened and closed and created a different future that I'm now living. Wow. You know, it's hard. I'll stop talking about Bernie Man. I know everybody can't stop talking about Bernie you know, Man. You know, I love Bernie Man. I, I know, I know much, but the, you know, the part that made me think, you know, I was 12 years old, just like you, when I went in the system. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, I mean, it's you know, brutal. To, to sit here and, and think back and say, you know, yeah, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, because no one is going to yeah. say that along the path. Um, you know, I think you have to mourn to move forward. I remember reading something you said. I can't remember it. I'm, I'm not in my own office. I had notes. But you said something about mourning, you know, being grieving. And I don't think we often pause to do that and realize that, that you know, yes. grief is so important to process trauma. You know, with mental health, I think of it a lot like breast cancer. And this is what I mean by that. 20. 25 years ago, 30 at this point, no one talked about it. Half the species thought it wasn't their problem. And today, it's front and center as it should be, and it's getting more attention than, than um, it did. And we're engaged, corporate America, all of us, and we're optimistic. We're hopeful. It's about the cure. It's not about death, dying, or mastectomies. And I think a lot about mental health. How do we de-shame something? and make it central and okay and all of our problems that we get to march together to be like, this is all of us. So I think mental health is just a key piece to our community that we have to wrestle with and put front and center. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100% on that. And I agree with you because not of only what I go through and, you know, I, I talk about this on our show all the time. My therapist and I, every Monday, it's the best 45 minutes of my week, um, you know, but I also look at my five children and I look at the trauma they had experienced prior to coming to my husband and I and to their forever family and dealing with the fact of what I see that they're dealing with. And and by the way, David, you know, I get a lot of hate from saying this, but I don't believe foster care is the answer. I don't believe that it is a system that truly, truly does what we originally intended it to do. And what I mean by that is that I really feel like, as you said about your mom, um, I really feel like, you know, I look at some of my kids and I think, why couldn't we be there to support them? Why weren't we there as a community to sure. give to help her out before she had lost her children. Um, because, you know, um, 14 years later, I consider her my friend and we have an amazing relationship. Um, 
And it, to me, I just feel sorry for her. And so I don't believe that foster care is the, the, the answer. But the thing that really struck me on something that you had said is, I, you know, how did your sexuality change your foster care experience? Because that's something, I mean, I'm 56 years old. I am an openly, gay man. Um, <laughs> I'm an openly gay man, but I grew up in a Mormon foster home that even if it was even mentioned about the G word, it was all devils and beatings with women. How did this, how did that experience change you? I, I want to answer that, but I just want to jump back to what you just said, because it's really important to me. And my book is a love letter to the American people to remind us that we're better than this. 10 years before I was born, we sent a person to the moon. And I don't know where that went, that verve in this country. We're proud when we fill a pothole. We denigrate social workers. We don't support biological families. We tell horrible stories about foster parents. And then we're underfunding the system for 30 years since government became the problem. And then we're shocked, 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 shocked that people are coming out the other end or biological parents don't get the support they need. Of course, a child should not be taken away. The power to separate a family is awesome. And I don't mean that in the pejorative sense. I mean that in the traditional use of that word. It is an awesome power, and we should covet it. And we should covet it so that our government doesn't abuse it. And today, we're criminalizing poverty. Instead of supporting a family to prevent the need for foster care, two-thirds of the kids entering the system are there because of poverty. I needed to be in foster care. There are hundreds of thousands of kids like me that need the system, and we must repair it. But we also need to do exactly what you just said. So I think you and I are in line there, which is if we are going to have this system, as we must, let's stop overwhelming it with beautiful children that need to be with their imperfect parents and support the hell out of those parents. But we're doing it. You know, I, I, we're bookended by a bill signed by President Clinton, which gave the Independence Act, and then recently the, the Families First Act by President Trump. And for the first time ever, President Clinton spent money on transition age foster youth in the 90s, 2000s. And then President Trump, as part of a larger bill, allowed money to be used for the first time, not to take the child away, but to do exactly what you say and how you live your life, which is to preserve and respect all families, including biological family. So we should do that. But I do think we should make a hell of a great system that you would not, I don't know how to say this nicely, but you would want to put your kid in foster care. Yes. Um, yes. So I, I, I wanted, I just wanted to say that. because. And I, you know what? I want to jump back to that before we go to the next question. Yeah. You are, you're so, you know, you and I could have this conversation, I think, for hours because mm -hmm. the, thing, the thing for me is that I, I understand the Family First Act and I'm, I'm happy that we have that act. But what I've seen and what I've experienced throughout the country as a public speaker and meeting with so many social workers is that I feel like we have... And like you, I was a kid, I needed this system. But I feel like because of the Family First Act, sometimes we're turning a blind eye on those children who need the system. And that worries me at times. I think that we don't, you know, as you just said, you know, our social workers are so overworked. But you have to understand, they have always been overworked. Uh, just like our teachers. And I worry that we have talked so much about reunification and not splitting the family up, that there's some children that I see are falling through the cracks um, that, you know, we are failing them. Yeah. You're, it, 
democracy is a never-ending effort at iteration. So everything you said is true. But if we think we're going to create a thing and then it's going to be done forever, it's imperfect. But I'll, let me say something right now. Are you seated? We have the best foster care system we've ever had right now. The safest, the most successful, the most equitable, the least racist. And Lord knows, don't we all know that there's a lot of problems? But if you stop and nourish yourself in the reality that our imperfect system is our decision and we can iterate and decide to have a different system, you begin, I think, to have hope and really feel agency that you can make this different for children and you can continue the process of democratic government, which is working to improve things. My sister's a social worker. And I asked her one day, I said, what do you do for work? And you know, she said to me, she said, I do paperwork. I said, I said, really? I mean, you only have like, I forgot the time. I think she had like 20 kids. She goes, that's not true. Every kid in that house, not even just my kids, I have to look at, observe, and write down a report. Every adult. So when you say I have 25 kids or 20 kids, I have 60. And I need to pay attention to all of them. And I, I sat there and I thought, oh my gosh. And then I said, what's your second most important duty? She goes, I am Airbnb. She goes, I get these detentions or kids get moved. And all I'm doing is dialing for homes which is why I think we have to tell a different narrative to bring the public along. We need more foster parents and we need my sister to do social work. So how about we arm her with an iPad instead of describing what she sees, let her take a picture. How about it populate probation, education, the court? How about it populate all of those files at once that she doesn't have to worry about it. She can be a trained professional yeah. and add her intellect. So I love what you said. I think we're in violent agreement. I do want to address my, my still, committed homosexuality. And yeah, and we're going to get to that, by the way. Hold on. I didn't forget that story. Yeah. You and I, have do, we're not done yet because I want to tell you something. You <laughs> said something that was this aha moment again for me. So yesterday I was on the phone with my friend Jennifer Perry. She is the founder of Foster Moore. Um, you know, she is, she is my, I love the fact that, you know, I call her my friend. I'm heading to LA, you know, can't, can't come to LA without seeing Jennifer. And Jennifer and I were talking, we had a Zoom yesterday because we always try to catch up all the time. Time. And, and one of the things her and I both said is exactly what you just said, is that we have got to start talking about foster parents and how, you know, you, you know, for me, you know, I'm, I, I have five beautiful kids and I'm so, so lucky that I and my husband decided to be foster parents. And I think that you, what you said, we, we constantly hear this negative and we need to start hearing the positive and we need families and people like you and I and, and Jennifer and, and other people to come together and say, you know, this is such a magical moment when yeah. a child comes into your home. And the thing I always say to every Every new foster parent is there's two things I hope you do. Number one, the day the child arrives in your home, you say, welcome home. You say, welcome home. And number two, you never, ever, ever call them a foster child. That you always call them what they are. And that is a child. And that is a child who's experiencing foster care. Because for me, who grew up in a home where there were bio children, I was always reminded, these are our bio kids, and this is our foster child. And I think that we need to have more dialogue conversations about good foster parents. And with that, you know, we're going to come back. By the way, we have to take a break. I could actually do this. This is definitely could be an hour podcast, you know, with much we have to talk about. But we're not going to get away from the question that I had asked. So we'll be right back. This episode of Fostering Change is sponsored by Comfort Cases, a national nonprofit 
that inspires our communities to bring hope and dignity to our youth that are in foster care. For just $10 a month, you can support the Comfort Case mission and help us eliminate trash bags for kids who are entering foster care. For every $10 that you give, Comfort Cases will give a Comfort XL to a child entering the system. Be part of the change. Visit comfortcases.org. Well, you know what? I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. There is nothing better than a great conversation. And when you have a conversation with somebody that you just click with, it even gets even better. You know, the fact that, you know, I mentioned Jennifer Perry and the fact that David is actually the co-founder of Foster Moore. And you all know how much I love Foster Moore and how much I love Jennifer Perry. But you know what? I also love this book. And we've ended the, the first segment and I had a question that I wanted to ask David and David I'm going to ask it you know how did your sexuality change you know your foster care experience because as a gay man as I was saying it was something that was never ever going to happen and be talked about sure how did that changed for you it started before foster care I think foster care is deeply woven into our larger societal expectations and beliefs and it reflects those I grew up in New York City in the early 70s, excuse me, late 70s, early 80s. And we slept on the street. We slept in uh, the Port Authority and uh, under Grand Central and the nooks and crannies. We slept on metal grates where steam would come out in the winter. And all around us, these men were dying of something called grid. And I had no clue what was going on, but I saw uh, all of these men in these shelters dying with all of these very scary looking wounds. And my mom, you know, for many of her things, is, is, was, is, uh, was not any longer homophobic and transphobic. But society taught me an early lesson from birth in looking at this plague. And I didn't, I couldn't tell you I was gay, but I got the message loud and clear from a society that let, let a generation of people die. And then I went into foster care and it deeply impacted my experience and the rest of my life. To jump ahead, I am a confirmed committed homosexual single. I don't want anyone to think otherwise. If you want to know what I'm looking for in a relationship, they'll be in the show notes. But uh, when I went into foster care, there was a process by which you are basically ranked. You're given a number, one, let's say one through 10. And the reason we do that is so that the home is appropriately resourced to handle the needs of the child. So if the child's a 10, the home is only, only able to handle one through four. It's not the good placement. And it's a shortcut. It makes a lot of sense. It makes things speedy. And we're reduced to a number. But when I went into foster care, in most states, it was still illegal to be gay, to have sex, to donate blood, to adopt, to foster. And when I went in, not only was that the case, they also had a process by which they attempted to make you less gay. But because I was diagnosed as gender identification disorder, suffering from, I was not allowed to go into general foster care. And I ended up going into a delinquency system that I did not belong. And it was very violent. And uh, I was consistently and constantly assaulted mentally and physically. And when I got out of that home, I went into regular foster care, right out of the system. And what I discovered that about foster care, you know, when I, I thought I lived in hell with my mom. I thought this was some version of hell. 
and I got into foster care and delinquency and I thought, oh my God, hell has a basement and I am here and how am I going to survive here? I couldn't tell you I was gay. I knew I was gay, but through rigorous therapy and violence, the system tried to make me less gay until I came across a beautiful set of foster parents. And then later moved on to live in Spain and start to heal. But you know what's beautiful about that experience? I, years later, when I came out, I worked for 13 years with others, child welfare, land illegal, to stop the federal government from reimbursing kids. States were killing gay kids. And it took until President Obama's second term that we stopped doing that. If I had not had that experience, and it wasn't me, I didn't write the law, there's all these large bodies there, but I sure put some wind in that sail. And I think about all the kids that will come after me, I will never know. And if I had not had the experience you and I had to be at the crucible of identity, when we don't have the resources necessary to understand it, then through neglect or violence, people try and change us, I would not have become the fierce advocate I became for my queer brothers and sisters in delinquency and dependency. I'll tell you one final story. I, I, you mentioned that I was a California Child Welfare Council member. When I was in foster care, and still the case in many states, you're not allowed to masturbate. Ladies and gentlemen, teenagers masturbate. Girls and boys and other. Everybody masturbates. If you look at porn on a state computer, you may have to register as a sex offender in some states. If you're in a single-sex group home and you go AWOL, because dear God, you want to make out with somebody, you could get escalated into jail. We have suppressed the sexual identity and emergence of these people called adolescents, and it's to our own detriment. We're like, why are they having unsuccessful relationships when they leave? Because we have not modeled or supported or loved or given the space to be imperfect or the sexual budding beings that they are. So I talk a lot about sex because it's bizarre to me that the very moment we're coming into our own in that space, a system is so shy about a biological function. Yeah. When I was growing up, my mom, we were being homeless. We, I always like to say people don't think homeless people have anything between their knees and their neck. They don't think of us as biological beings with functions. Right. And I had to learn to make what we called in my house twigs. I would make my mom tampons. And we would do it at a public bathroom, paper towel, and toilet paper. We would roll it like a Tootsie Pop, flatten it, moisten it, flatten it, and then do another roll. And I share that not to shock of people, but we're human. We're human as gay people. My sister and mom were human on the street without access to sanitary products. And we're human. We had to defecate in places that are just embarrassing. So I love that you asked that question. It made me an advocate and a fierce one at that for all children, but especially those are most vulnerable, like queer, trans. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because, you know, for me, it, it was... I, I used to always think that because of what happened to me as a boy, because of the system, that it turned me gay. And that's not what I wanted to be because everybody said it was bad. And, you know, just like you, it took, you know, someone to truly love me unconditionally um, that made me realize that I could also love myself unconditionally mm -hmm. and the true me. You know, David, I will tell you, you are fascinating your book you know you didn't have to write this 
You did not have to, to open up everything that you opened up to all of us, um, because I think that it's important that we read it. I think we it's important. But, you know, as we end this this interview and again, I, you, you you made the comment and I'm going to tell you right now, I am literally reaching out. To Jennifer. You and Jennifer and I are going to do a show um, come this season. I want it to be the first show of the season, David. David's listening. I know that. But you know what? So much has changed in our country. And, you know, we talk about the change that's happened and and how some we've seen some good things happen. In 2019, my husband and I um, made the decision to have a fifth child. Um, it was just because I met a young boy giving a talk and knew that he was in the system. And when I reached out to the social worker to find out about, you know, having him come and be with us, he was 18 years old at the time, senior in high school. Um, when they found out that my husband and I were a same-sex couple, they refused to take our calls anymore. Um, so I want people to know that in, even in 2019, we are still seeing this. And I live right outside of the District of Columbia. But the thing that I worry about is what we've seen with the change within our landscape is this post-Roe era. We are barely able to take care of the 438,000 children that are sitting in foster care and by the way, this, they say that we get one child every two minutes, 700 a day. I don't believe that. I believe the number is increased. What are we going to do, my friend? What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. You know, I got asked a lot about Roe. My book came out right as that decision was uh, overturned. The decision in, in Dobbs to eradicate a fundamental constitutional right for women to control their body. And as a gay man, you and I both probably were on alert to Justice Thomas's comments that we were next on the list. And I'm very proud that our imperfect union bipartisanly voted to protect us. That's huge. We should nourish ourselves in that, in that success and that, that love. I think we have to first realize with all that is going on in the world, I'm constantly struck by a fact. Are you ready? Are you seated? Not since 1999 has a presidential debate mentioned the words child poverty. We've talked about coal mining at every debate. There are thousands of coal miners, not even a hundred. There are 8.4 million American children living in abject poverty. They're starving. What is it, one in four kids are hungry? What do you think their parents are eating? So I think we have to um, kind of pull back the lens a little bit. And in my initial press, a lot of folks were, it was Dobbs, Dobbs, Dobbs. And in order, as you know, you've done it so well, in order to get kind of awareness, people wanted me to have a very strong opinion about Dobbs. And they did not like my answer, which I will share with you. In every controversy in our society from my lifetime, Foster care has been a catch-all for the failure of other systems. When we can't control companies that pump opioids into our community and poison them until the parents become shadows of themselves, the children end up in foster care. When our border issues erupt because we have children that can't sit down and figure the hell out, we separate children and we shove them in foster care all across the country. We're still trying to reunite them. When Roe gets overturned, foster care. However, I don't want foster care to be discussed in the shadow of yet another controversy erupting in our country that has not successfully done anything for foster care reform. 
Those issues are important. We should talk about them. But I don't want to constantly be compared as an issue to these other controversial issues. Foster care does not need to be in the shadow. It doesn't need to be addressed because Roe happened. The boat was already sinking. <laughs> yeah, we put more people on it, it's still gonna sink. So what do I think about these issues? I think we should, we should talk about them. But as a foster care community, as Dumbledore's army, we need to demand that 8.4 million children are not an afterthought because this is where we're coming from as foster kids, broken families, broken communities with the paucity of hope and opportunity, battled with racism, generations of violence. We can do better. I think we can do better. Again, 10 years before I was born, we said a man to the moon. In my lifetime, we've halved the number of children living in poverty. What if we did that again and again and again? It's a decision we make. I care deeply about a woman's right to choose and I support it. But I am not going to have my issue exercised in the shadow of any other issue. We demand and we will receive full attention to this topic because it deserves it, irrespective of these other crises that our country faces that we must also address. Wow. Wow. Let me tell you something. I have been so, so lucky to receive these four amazing awards behind me because of guest like this. And this one, I'm telling you, is going to make sure that it goes, David, I, I just, I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough. I am blown away. It's very rare that happens, but I am blown away. Your book, I really want people to get your book, but I want people to follow you. I want people, because you said something in the very beginning of this, of this interview, and I want to repeat this to you, because I believe what your mother said. One day, I'm going to see you sitting as a Supreme Court judge. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you, listen up, everybody, you know, another great conversation, another great, unbelievable guest. Um, please click on, you can find his book. Um, I'm telling you, it is, to me, it was a quick read because I just couldn't wait to get to the next page. But when he said to me is it was a love letter, I felt that. And I know you will too. And so I hope each and every one of you continue to do what I've always asked. And that is go out there and be a good human. Take care. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for listening or watching the latest episode of Fostering Change. All of us on our team hope that you've learned something new today and have been inspired to be a good human. Now, just a reminder that you can always find Fostering Change on your favorite channels on Google, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and others including, of course, comfortcases.org. I want to give a big thank you to all of you for joining us each and every week. And a reminder that if you have a suggestion for a guest, or maybe you might have a question about today's podcast, or are interested in becoming a sponsor of Fostering Change, please don't hesitate to email me personally at fosteringchange@comfortcases.org. Now, that's it for now. Thanks again, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Take care.